Y'all come out. Y'all come out Friday and root for us. I think we can whoop their asses. Okay, welcome aboard once again to the third podcast edition of the Counter Vortex with your host, Bill Weinberg. And uh, we're opening up with some music here, taking the Wayback Machine to 1969, a song by the name of Four Minutes to Twelve by The Fugs, the legendary yippee band from uh, the Lower East Side from back in the day from their album of 1969, The Bell of Avenue A, a reference to Avenue A here on the Lower East Side. And, uh, of course, the uh, political context for that song should be rather obvious. Four minutes to 12, and there's a madman at the wheel. And with each verse, it gets one minute closer to 12 (laughs) until finally at the end of the song, it's 12, and it's time to say your prayers. Obviously, this was a reference to... President Richard Nixon and his nuclear saber rattling back in 1969 and his claim to have a secret plan to end the war in Vietnam, which was a um, not so veiled reference to using the nuke. So a, um, a very, very paranoid time. And unfortunately, a song which is uh, perhaps more relevant today than it was back in 1969 when it was written and if we had a madman at the wheel with richard nixon in 1969 boy have we got a madman at the wheel with donald trump today in 2017 and maybe some of you have um noted the um decision of the bulletin of the atomic scientists on january 25th to advance the um, minute hand of their doomsday clock to two minutes of midnight from its previous two and a half minutes of midnight. 
in response, most obviously, to Trump's nuclear saber rattling with uh, with North Korea, as well as um, various other frightening developments on the world stage, with which presage imminent apocalypse, not to, you know, beat around the bush. <laughs> so um, that's what the Doomsday Clock was all about when they established it, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist established it in the immediate aftermath of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And now we are closer to, um, to doomsday by the reckoning of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist than we have been ever since, I believe the last one was 1952, with the development of the hydrogen bomb. Uh, two and a half minutes, the previous posture was um, as close as we had been since the Reagan Cold War of the 1980s. Now we're as close as we've been ever since the original Cold War of the 1950s. So um, kind of a grim picture. And uh, the madman at the wheel, I would argue, well, for starters, I'm not too crazy about, you know, madman, especially in the aftermath of the um, of the school shooting in Florida. I'm very wary of um, stigmatization of quote-unquote insanity, a term I don't even really like. And I don't think that the uh, the problem with um, with figures such as Nixon and Reagan and Trump is that they're insane. I think that the problem is that they are um, drunk on power and uh, you know pathologically obsessed with their own power. And I think that it's actually a a political pathology. It's not a um, psychological pathology in the you know clinical sense. It's actually a political pathology which has worked which is at work, and it's actually linked to a greater political and economic pathology. And I was glad to see that in their, um, in their statement, noting that the, the minute hand of the doomsday clock has now been advanced by, uh, by half a minute to two, to, uh, to two minutes of midnight, they uh, weren't merely making note of... Trump and Kim Jong-un and their mutual uh, nuclear saber rattling, but they were noting the um, threat of global ecological collapse, which is looming ever closer. They write, global carbon dioxide emissions have not yet shown the beginnings of sustained decline toward zero that must occur if ever increasing warming is to be avoided. The nations of the world will have to significantly decrease their greenhouse gas emissions to keep risks manageable. And so far, the global response has fallen short of meeting this challenge. Yes, it certainly has, to say the least, with even the completely inadequate goals of the Paris Accords having now been disavowed by the United States under Trump. So, uh, you know, I read about this and I am uh, reminded of a uh, of an essay which was written by the great... Um, British Marxist thinker and anti-war activist E.P. Thompson, way back in 1980, wrote a, um, an essay entitled Notes on Exterminism, the Last Stage of Civilization, which, of course, 1980 being that very critical year, the dawn of the, uh, of the, the last phase of the Cold War, the Reagan Cold War, so to speak, and the big thrust of um, nuclear rearmament, which was undertaken by, by both superpowers, beginning in, beginning in that year, beginning in that critical year, 1980, which saw Reagan's election here in the United States, 
and we they were two years into Thatcher over in Britain, and uh, also saw the um, Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, the Iran hostage crisis, etc. And E.P. Thompson was basically arguing that the uh, inter-imperialist contest for world domination has uh, you know had, had set the the human race on a um, on a course towards exterminism, on a course towards actual extermination, and that the um, the technological element of uh, of the arms race had actually sort of taken on a life of its own, and unless there was a um, a real a popular upswell, a big activist upswell from below to try to put the brakes on the arms race, that uh, we were headed towards a global confl- conflagration, which was essentially going to mean the end of the human race. Now uh, the good news is that in fact that um, popular upswell happened. In fact, there was a, um, a massive movement for nuclear disarmament in um, both the United States and in Britain and in the West and generally. And finally, at the end of the, um, at the end of the decade, there were the, uh, the, the wave of, of popular revolution, which swept through the communist world and brought down the um, Stalinist dictatorships of Eastern Europe. And it was in the years after that, in the 1990s, that the uh, Bolton of the Atomic Scientists actually moved the minute hand all the way back to, I think it got as far back as 17 minutes of midnight back in that immediate um, wave of optimism in the, in the aftermath of the end of the Cold War. Of course, in the years since then, that um, a lot of that progress has been reversed. And um, the ways in which that progress has been reversed points to perhaps a, um, a certain timidity on the part of, um, of E.P. Thompson, because um, he stated in Notes on Exterminism that he uh, was not claiming to have discovered, you know, speaking in Marxist terms, he wanted to be clear that he wasn't, you know, treading on the toes of old daddy Marx, and he wanted to be clear that he was not claiming to have, um, um, to, to be purporting that there was actually an exterminist mode of production, you know, just like there had been the um, classical mode of production under the slave states of the ancient world, and then the feudalist mode of production, and finally the capitalist mode of production. But uh, you know, he, he was saying that, no, I, I'm not going so far as to say that we have entered an exterminist mode of production. But looking at the ecological dimension of um, what we may call exterminism, which has become much clearer in the years since E.P. Thompson wrote that essay way back in 1980, I think that perhaps you can make a case that, in fact, we have entered an exterminist mode of production, that um, late capitalism is not merely exploiting human labor and is not merely um, exploiting the Earth's resources at a sustainable level, but um, and, and, and the, the primary contradiction of capitalism being, you know, the alienation of the proletariat of, a, of the wealth of its the, the fruit of its own labor. But um, is actually now exploiting the Earth's resources at a level which is no longer sustainable. And it's actually gobbling up the last of the resources at such a breakneck pace that um, and, and continuing to, you know, take carbon out of the, um, the guts of the Earth and spew it up into the atmosphere at such a pace that we have could to, perhaps could to be you know said to have entered an exterminist mode of production with you know the last of um, the glaciers disappearing 
um, both from uh, the Arctic and from the highest mountain ranges around the world, with uh, you know the the last of the aquifers being um, being rapidly depleted by by agribusiness and and unsustainable irrigation and um, hydroelectric schemes and so on. And uh, with the last of the um, of, uh, of of the rainforest and natural areas around the world being gutted for um, for oil and for minerals and basically, you know, gutted as sort of a safe a social safety valve for, you know, the excess populations of Brazil and Peru and so on, who have been, you know, the peasantry of these countries have been expropriated of the traditional lands by the um, by by agribusiness and the oligarchies being forced into the rainforest, which are the last, you know, expendable and open lands. So um, perhaps we have now entered into an exterminist mode of production. I think perhaps, you know, that's the, uh, the, the ultimate implication here, that even apart from the very real um, threat of nuclear apocalypse, the mere happy functioning of the capitalist system is also propelling us towards an apocalypse of planetary ecological collapse, which will perhaps be a little bit slower than nuclear war, but perhaps in the long run, just as complete. And uh, finally, I was very heartened to find that uh, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, in their statement, were uh, are making note of um, information technology and how it is dramatically eroding our ability to confront these very problems. They, uh, this is an issue which is particularly close to my heart. I'm going to have more to say about this. But um, they write, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists write, beyond the nuclear and climate domains, technological change is disrupting democracies around the world as states seek and exploit opportunities to use information technologies as weapons, among them Internet-based deception campaigns aimed at undermining elections and popular confidence in institutions essential to free thought and global security. And obviously, this is extremely pressing and extremely obvious in uh, you know the wake. Just a couple of days ago, um, uh, Robert Mueller brought the, uh, the first indictments in the um, scandal concerning Russian meddling in the uh, U.S. election through uh, essentially through the manipulation of social media. And it's become extremely obvious how um, social media and digital technology in general have um, augmented the dramatically, exponentially augmented the power of propagandists and have eviscerated and are continuing to eviscerate day by day um, what is now being called a term that I don't really like, legacy media. Back in the, um, you know, the days um, when the people actually got their news from newspapers and television networks and so on. And, of course, we all understand that, you know, there were problems with that system. And we were very well aware of the increasing corporate control of the media. But at least back then, there was somebody watching the clock. There were editors and there were fact checkers. And it wasn't, you know, the the complete free-for-all um, environment for the most sinister lying propagandists such as we have today. And, you know, there is this, uh, you know, initially there was this sort of utopian notion with uh, with digital technology that it's much more democratic now because anybody has access to the Internet and anybody can be a journalist, quote unquote. But, um, you know, 
particularly in the in the wake of you know this so-called Russiagate scandal, we can see how even you know this seemingly more democratic atmosphere has just created a free-for-all, which can be and is being exploited by state propagandists. And it isn't, it isn't really having this decentralized effect. That's something of an illusion, that it's in fact, in, in fact it's um, lubricating a, uh, a propaganda efforts and propaganda systems by state power, no less or perhaps even more than, you know, uh, the old, more seemingly more centralized environment of legacy media did back in the bad old days, which I would argue were, in fact, the good old days. And uh, this cuts to a um, what I might call, you know, the meta discussion of the fact that I am now, after having, you know, for 20 years of my life, produced a, um, a program on WBAI radio, real radio, which actually broadcast over the airwaves, you know, from an antenna at the top of the Empire State Building. And now... I have been reduced to podcasting and, um, you know, fighting for a, um, a, a share of this vast amorphous audience on the Internet, as opposed to actually, you know, broadcasting over over legacy media of um, of, you know, old school radio, actually actual radio radio as opposed to Internet radio. And um, similarly, uh, you know, after having had a, um, a fruitful career in print media, for uh, for many years, for you know, like say a generation of my life, um, I have you know now been reduced to trying to squeeze a dime off of the internet, like every other downsized lumpen journalist. And I'm using lumpen in the precise Marxist sense of a worker who has been disenfranchised of its ni- of his niche in the economy by uh, by uh, economic and technological forces. Uh, been reduced to being a, a lumpen journalist trying to uh, you know squeeze a dime out of the internet with my own website countervortex.org <clears throat> and uh, so this is uh, like I say this is sort of the meta discussion the podcast about the fact that I'm podcasting so to speak um, so I think that you know a um, a critique not only of nuclear weapons but of capitalism is necessary in order to really understand the forces which are propelling us towards apocalypse and not only of capitalism, but of technology and in particular of digital technology is necessary to, um, to really understand the forces which are propelling the collapse of civilization ultimately and um, probably the extinction of the human race. I'll have more to say about this. I should um, emphasize here that, uh, you know, this should be too obvious to even be worth stating, given the fact that I'm podcasting and blogging, but I'm not a Luddite. I will confess that in my heart of hearts, I wish I were a Luddite. Just like in my heart of hearts, I wish I was a pacifist. But, um, you know, uh, man does not live, or, you know, we human beings, forgive my lapse into sexism, we human beings do not live by sentiment alone. Sentiment is very important, but rationality is also very important. So, like I say, you know, in sentiment, I'm a Luddite. In sentiment, I'm a pacifist. But uh, when I um, apply rational analysis, I understand that just like, you know, when ISIS is coming to burn down your village, you can't be a pacifist. You know, sometimes it's necessary to get your hands dirty with all of the genuine contradictions, and I really mean serious, agonizing contradictions of armed resistance. Similarly, 
um, if I were to boycott digital technology, I would have no voice. And having no voice is not really an acceptable alternative. So um, uh, I, am, I have been forced to get my hands dirty, and I do mean get my hands dirty in a metaphorical sense, with the truly agonizing contradictions of having to you know, deal with digital technology in order to get across any critique of nuclear weapons, state power, capitalism, and digital technology. So, yes, it is something of a contradiction, but um, we all understand that contradiction is inherent to the system that we live under. So, uh, no, I'm not a Luddite. I kind of wish that I was or could be a Luddite, but when I um, uh, you know, look at the situation rationally, I realize that um, I have been forced to deal with digital technology as the cost of having um, any effectiveness or any voice whatsoever. But at the same time, like I say, I'm using technology to try to hopefully propagate a critique of digital technology. And just, you know, if Luddism is a, um, an intellectual trap, so is, uh, you know, um, this um, cyber utopianism and thinking that, you know, anybody can be a journalist now and it's also groovy and ultra-democratic because of digital technology. Also an intellectual trap. So um, I think that um, we have to resist digital technology at the same time that we use it. A part of um, resisting te- digital technology is keeping alive print media. And I do wish that I had more access to print media. And I, as I see the, um, you know, the, the opportunities closing to actually get my words into print, um, it fills me with a great deal of despair. Among the various publications that I write for, I write for The Villager, which is uh, my uh, local lower Manhattan daily. I do a column for them, a sort of a sporadic column. I try to get out at least a column a month entitled Global Village, kind of a pun on the fact that I, you know, we're, here I am in the East Village and greater Greenwich Village, so to speak, but, you know, looking, trying to look at um, global affairs through the prism of, um, of local issues, as it were, and understand that uh, New York City is a global city and that um, communities from around the world are represented here in the East Village. Um, So, uh, and one of the things that, you know, I'm really proud of, even though, you know, it's local media and it's reaching a fairly small audience, it's one of the few places that I can still write for. And every week they actually get out a print edition and I can actually sit down with a cup of coffee and open a print edition of the newspaper that I can wrap a fish in and read my own words. So, um, you know, keeping alive print media has got to be a part of the resistance to digital technology. And I would also argue that um, intelligent journalism is a part of the resistance to the digital Borg, so to speak. And there is, uh, I, would, I would purport that there is actually an inherent danger to, um, to digital technology of, um, of dumbing down both the process of reading and the process of writing. Because, you know, when you're reading on a screen, it really is not the same physical act of, of actually reading on the printed page. You may think that it is, but it isn't. And one of the obvious ways that it isn't is that when you're, you know, reading the printed page, you're not going to be distracted by advertising and hyperlinks, which are going to, you know, lead you astray in the middle of a sentence. 
And uh, in, in addition to which, you know, very often, uh, you know, you've got these, uh, particularly with tweeting with the 140 character limit, you know, you've got these um, inherent um, uh, limitations on, you know, the, uh, the, the limitations of brevity, which are imposed by the digital form. It's actually eroding our attention spans and our um, abilities, our actual capacity for deep attention, which I would assert uh, print media loans itself to and digital media um, simply does not loan itself to. And in fact, is, you know, is radically eroding it. So um, despite the fact that, you know, a good 99% of what I do is now, uh, you know, every day what I do with my life is now in digital format. First and foremost, my own website, countervortex.org. I strive to apply old school pre-digital standards to what I write and, you know, so keeping alive intelligent journalism, you know, even in spite of the medium that you're writing on, in spite of the digital medium that you're writing on, in spite of the fact that, you know, very often it is a blogging as opposed to journalism. And I do draw a distinction between those two things, uh, you know, keeping alive the, uh, you know, the old school standards of intelligent journalism, which is something that I strive to do. But I also understand that, uh, you know, it's an uphill struggle because of the medium which I have been relegated to due to social market and technological forces which are beyond my control. And ultimately, there's, you know, a bigger problem still, which is um, you can already see it coming that, you know, at a certain point, I mean, already they're talking about implanted ships already. You know, there are, um, you know, programs where in order to um, to get onto the, uh, you know, to get, you know, in order for office workers to get into the office or in order for uh, commuters to get into the uh, commuter rail line, uh, you know, rather than uh, using a, um, uh, you know, a metro card as we do here in, in New York City, which I consider to be an abomination. And boy, am I ever nostalgic for the token. But uh, rather than the, uh, than, than, than the Metro card, they're actually using implanted chips in various places around the world. So already we're talking about implanted chips. And as soon as they get to the point of, you know, break, uh, of, of um, uh, breaking down the, uh, the digital neural divide and actually coming up with a, um, a digital neural interface, then they are going to have the ability to... And, you know, by they, I mean the people who control the technology are going to have the ability to um, directly control our thoughts and emotions, not merely through propaganda, but through, you know, actual direct stimulus of, you know, our brain cells and nervous system. And then human freedom is going to be absolutely extinct. The very concept of human autonomy is going to be utterly extinct on a level far beyond the worst that, you know, George Orwell and Aldous Huxley could have imagined back in the day. So uh, basically, getting back to the notion of exterminism here, I see three potential futures for humanity. In broad sweeping terms, I really cannot see anything other than one of these three general trends. And the first is the most obvious, a collapse into barbarism. As uh, Rosa Luxemburg posited long ago, ultimately, the future for humanity is going to be 
socialism or barbarism. And uh, it could come about through nuclear war. It could come about through ecological collapse. Or it could come about through the erosion of our culture to the point where uh, we are no longer able to, um, to communicate through the written word and um, our civil, the, the basic cultural underpinnings of our civilization collapse. And of course, you know, with the worst of these scenarios, nuclear war or, you know, the, the worst case scenarios of global ecological collapse, we understand that this could well lead to the actual extinction of the human race. So that's number one, collapse into barbarism with the potential, at least, for the extinction of the human race. Uh, Number two, a uh, possibility which Rosa Luxemburg did not anticipate back when she was writing in um, the 19-teens, because the technology hadn't advanced to that point, is um, also a form of extinction of the human race, entering into what we call, what has been called, post-humanity. And there are these so-called, you know, transhumanists who are actually hubristic and creepy enough to welcome this future. Uh, I do not welcome it. I see it as utterly, utterly dystopian. But uh, the actual, you know, um, they would call it evolution. I would call it degradation of um, the human race into something which is no longer human due to, uh, you know, the the actual, um, uh, again, the actual... uh, eradication of the divide between technology and the human organism. And uh, again, this, you know, opening the door to the complete, most intimate, most overwhelming uh, and and intractable um, manipulation of human thought and emotion and the very human psyche by the forces of technology, which ultimately means the people who control the technology. And this ultimately means, um, you know, as C.S. Lewis called it in the sexist argot of his day, the abolition of man, or we could say the abolition of humanity. Um, And uh, this would also be a form of extinction of the human race and and, and actually turning us into, you know... um, semi-organic robots. And finally, the last, (laughs) and I have to say the least likely of the scenarios that I can foresee, is worldwide socialist revolution. And a socialist revolution which um, has learned from the the errors and the barbarities which were committed in the name of socialism in the 20th century under Stalin and Mao and so on, and is actually a socialism which is radically democratic and is actually a socialism in which power is flowing from below to the top through council democracy and, um, and, and, and basic, you know, radical forms of, uh, you know, autonomous human organization and um, also socialism with a, um, a profound ecological sensitivity and, uh, and, a, and a, a, a deep critique of technology. Um, a, a critique of, you know, digital technology in particular, and also a critique of industrialism. And, uh, but again, not in, uh, you know, resisting the lore of, uh, you know, some big sweeping apocalyptic change, which has brought about some of the worst nightmares of the, um, of the 20th century under, you know, Mao and Stalin and Pol Pot and the rest. But um, again, doing it, and again, this is a, something of a contradiction and something of a tall order, which I, which I genuinely recognize, but doing it in a way which is 
democratic and seriously, profoundly, radically democratic, more democratic rather than less democratic than, you know, the bourgeois representative um, democracy which we live under, which is increasingly barely worthy of the name democracy due to the um, totalizing effects of propaganda. So, um, you know, that is the, um, the third option. And it's going, to, um, it's going to require, first of all, it's going to require transnational solidarity and getting over the whole sort of divide and conquer trip which is going on. Uh, between um, imperial sphere of influences. You know, I ranted about this on a previous episode where, you know, one of the worst tragedies of our time is, you know, due to, um, due to the world being divided up into spheres of influence and due to totalizing state propaganda, there are obvious obstacles to, you know, protesters here in the United States, um, you know, protesters for uh, economic justice here and racial justice here in the United States and for, uh, you know, economic empowerment and against, you know, the lords of capital here in the United States, um, you know, seeing themselves in solidarity with the people who are protesting for exactly the same things in places like Iran and Syria because of, you know, the whole propaganda game, which is being played both by our government and by their governments, where, uh, you know, Trump is making his... Um, completely cynical and disingenuous play to be supporting the protesters in Iran, which, of course, he does not. He's merely exploiting them. And um, similarly, you know, the ruling Ayatollahs in, um, in Iran, you know, if you read their... If you read their state propaganda, press TV and so on, you know, they're all very, um, you know, enthused about Black Lives Matter and so on at the same time that they're unleashing, you know, their own regime is leasing police forces against protesters in Iran. So we have to no longer be fooled by this. And we actually actually get serious about building transnational solidarity and understand that ultimately people who are fighting for popular empowerment and social justice all over the world are not going to get anywhere if they're pitted against each other by, by you know, spheres of influence in big government and propaganda systems, and that we have to be serious about solidarity with one another. That's really, really where it begins. Otherwise, governments are going to continue to be able to pit us against each other, just as, you know, Trump in this country, just for instance, has, um, you know, came to power by um, harnessing legitimate grievances about the fact that the uh, the working class in the United States has been sold down the river by free trade economics, but um, uh, linking that um, that grievance to xenophobia and scapegoating and hatred of the Mexicans and the Chinese and so on. So uh, you know we have to keep the critique of free trade economics and neoliberalism, but to do it in a way which is going to build solidarity between working people, for instance here in the United States and in Mexico and in China, and for that matter, in Iran. So, uh, you know, that's really where it begins. And, uh, you know, beyond that, <clears throat> getting serious about, um, about building a, um, a radical left, which is um, seriously democratic and um, intransigently opposed to um, uh, state power and to capitalism, such as you know, state power as constituted, at, at least, and I would say ultimately state power, period, and certainly against capitalism. And uh, this is, you know, I mean, it's kind of a, a bit, it's still kind of a bad word, but I call this anarchy or anarchism. I mean, it's a sign of progress, but recently the word socialism, which used to be completely anathema, 
um, in the United States throughout the long years of the Cold War has, you know, since Occupy Wall Street and Bernie Sanders and so on, it's sort of become legitimate. You can actually begin to call yourself a socialist again and, and not be completely, you know, just laughed off the stage. So that's a sign of hope. Uh, like everything, it's a double-edged sword because, you know, I fear that um, what socialism means has been dumbed down at the same time that the word has once again entered the mainstream. And, uh, you know, that, that you know, certainly what Bernie Sanders is really talking about isn't socialism. He's talking about shoring up the remnants of the New Deal, which is not the same thing as a public seizure of the means of production <laughs> and eradicating capitalism. So uh, that's, you know, I think we have to keep our eye on the ball in terms of, you know, understanding what socialism actually means. And uh, when I talk about anarchism, I'm talking about a socialism which is also radically democratic. And, um, you know, some people have you know, said that anarchy is democracy taken seriously. And once again, power flowing up from below. So, um, or better yet, social leveling entirely. So uh, this is, you know, a long-term goal. I understand that we're not getting there tomorrow. And um, I think that we should go into this whole enterprise um, being brutally realistic about it in terms of, in terms of uh, for, for starters, in terms of, you know, what the odds are of trying to actually save the planet before capitalism completely destroys it, but also in terms of what's going to be necessary to do so, which means not hedging about the fact that ultimately we have to be opposed to the capitalist system. So um, this is what I call the counter-vortex the planet is spiraling into a vortex of ecological collapse, grave risk growing every day of nuclear war. And even if the capitalist system continues to function along its happy way and avoid a total collapse, the um, uh, ultimate extinction of the human race. And the only, ultimately, and I'm not being glib about this or utopian about this, I'm being harshly realistic about it. Ultimately, the only alternative is going to be anarchy in the best sense of the word. And that maybe we should be trying to, you know, um, have the, uh, the, the intellectual fortitude to try to actually reclaim anarchism from being completely verboten, just like we have made some progress in recent years in reclaiming socialism from being completely verboten. And to be clear, when we're talking about anarchism, no, we're not talking about you know, apocalyptic violence. We're talking about moving things in a better direction, ultimately, but without illusions. And that's what I call the counter vortex. The world is spiraling into this vortex of collapse. And we, through our resistance, hopefully can um, create a counter vortex, which is moving things in, um, in the other direction towards, uh, you know, away from the threat of devastating war, towards peace, away from the, uh, the threat of, global ecological collapse and soared towards some kind of sustainability and, um, and ultimately away from the threat of digital totalitarianism and um, towards, you know, saving human autonomy. And uh, again, you know, I have been relegated to preaching this doctrine <laughs> through means which are ultimately antithetical to it. And it's something of a contradiction, but once again, we all understand from Hegel that we advance through contradiction. So um, join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance. Check us out online at countervortex.org. And think about all this. Okay? Tell me what you think. 
be in touch and join us for our next podcast. Bye.